Good evening, folks. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and open to 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7. While you're turning there, let me share with you a little story in a book that I read. I just finished reading uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning novel, All of the Light We Cannot See, which tells the story of a little German orphan boy named Werner who got caught up in the events of, of World War II in 1939 and, and on throughout the war. Werner was a unique kid, and it was uh, he was unique in the story because it was soon discovered that he was a self-taught radio mechanics expert. It was a skill that he had developed on his own, uh, even as an orphan, after he found a short-circuit radio in the alley behind the children's home. Once his skill, which was that of a prodigy, was discovered, he was quickly drafted by a group of German scientists to help them with what to him was some mysterious experiments in a, in a secret military lab. At, at first, the experiments allowed him to tinker with new cutting-edge technology, you know, radio technology. And, but then eventually, he was asked to practice some math problems. Now, to be good at radios, you have to be good at, at math. And so he, this was not an issue for him. Uh, he practiced day after day for months, working a really specific type of, of trigonometry problem. He didn't understand why he was doing it, and he asked his advisor, the, the chief adult scientist, what he was doing and, and wanted to understand what's going on. And his superior said, it's only numbers, Werner. It's only numbers. Well, eventually the young boy who uh, had already been caught up in the war against his wishes begins to realize what his work was being used for. He was being used, his, his mind and his formulas were being used to develop a formula to triangulate the coordinates of illegally owned radios that were being operated by resistance forces. And eventually, once the method was perfected, he was actually uh, placed with a group of brutal thugs where they, their only task was to track down these secret radios and, and destroy their owners. Well, he's brought along for his mastery of the formulas and, and of radios and that sort of thing. But for weeks, he's drug all over Europe, plugging numbers in to his equation and then hiding in the car while the Germans go in and, and murder the owners of, of the radio, often elderly women and, and children. And the, the boy in the book is trying to, he's trying to remain morally innocent. And throughout the process, he keeps repeating this refrain to himself that he was taught in school. It's only numbers, Werner. It's only numbers. But of course, it, it wasn't numbers. Werner's numbers, his, his formula, it had a meaning. It had a value and it had a use. And once the correct formula was discovered, all he had to do was plug in the numbers but out came devastating consequences. Now, we love formulas. You may not like math. I don't like math. But we like formulas. We like regularities. Humans, we like the stability and, and the control that, that they gives us. We like knowing how to predict the outcome. I looked at a map today of all the hurricane predictions, right? That's a formula. It's a set of, of, of numbers, a program. And, and, you know, the same is true for the church, 
Wouldn't you love to know the formula for effective evangelism? I mean, you say a couple words and bam, conversion every time. Like, wouldn't you love to know that? Or wouldn't you love to know the formula for guaranteed spiritual growth? Memorize these verses, go to this, you know, revival service and, and you're, you know, out pops a mature Christian. Or even better, wouldn't you love to know the formula for revival? If only it was so easy, right? Well, I'd like to actually suggest to you tonight that in the text that is before us, we have a formula for revival. A formula for revival or renewal. It's, it's a formula, or perhaps we could call it a recipe, that if you were to combine several ingredients, I think we would, should expect to see revival in our church. Now, this might sound a little provocative to some of you, because so often we talk about revival as this rare, mysterious sort of thing that no one can control, and you know, it's this thing that everybody knows is good. We know it's something we're supposed to ask for, we, but we may not really be sure what it is or, or really what it would look like if it came. So let me try to clarify what I mean. First of all, I'm not saying that we can mechanically manufacture revival. I, I don't think we can. Like, like if we could just find the right speaker or if we could get a certain number of people to sign up for the prayer room during certain hours, and I, that sort of thing. We've already seen in Samuel that God cannot be manipulated, right? Remember that? But I think we should recognize that in the scriptures, the scriptures themselves are God's revelation of how people can find God. They, God reveals to us how people can seek him and find him. Well, that sounds a lot like revival, doesn't it? It's not a secret. It's not some mysterious spiritual phenomenon. God has revealed to us how we can put ourselves in a position to expect a spiritual blessing and the outpouring of his grace. Now, I admit that usually when we refer to revival, part of what we mean is we're referring to the special outpouring of God's spirit in an exceedingly unusual way. But here's the thing, that's not up to us. That's totally up to God. So what I'm saying is though we cannot manipulate the Spirit of God, we can place ourselves in a position where we can expect to find more of God. You could put it like this. It's like me saying, I can't guarantee when it's going to rain, but I can guarantee that when it rains, if you go outside, you're going to get wet, right? I can guarantee that. I think this text teaches us how to get wet. You see, in 1 Samuel 7, we see a massive nationwide spiritual awakening take place in Israel. And I think if we're reading honestly, and if we're reading carefully, we, we should ask, how did it happen? And can it happen again? And for us, can it happen at, at Trinity? And I believe the answer to those last two questions is yes. Undoubtedly, yes. And I'd be willing to go so far to say that if we do the same things that Israel did, the same things we're going to see in chapter 7, we would see revival at Trinity. Now, you remember from the last several weeks in our study that this is a time in Israel's history which is marked by incredibly bleak spiritual darkness. 
The people of Israel have once again forgotten God and they have explicitly defiled him and defied him by worshiping idols and trying to manipulate him. And as a result of this, we have seen in the last several chapters alarmingly that God removed the blessing of his presence. God left Israel by allowing the ark to be captured and then held by the Philistines for, for seven months. And we've seen that the Philistines, they couldn't handle the presence of the Lord. So they sent the ark back to Israel. But the problem was is that when the ark returned to Israel, though they were excited to see it, God struck 70 of them dead for looking at it, for looking at the ark, which was disobeying God's law. And so we see that even though the ark was returned to Israel, God actually didn't entirely send it back to Israel. He actually put it in a Gentile village where it was basically parked in some guy's barn and forgotten about for 20 years. They were unable to stand the presence of God. And so the people of Israel did the same thing the Philistines did. They tried to get rid of and forget about God. But what we see in this story is true for us too, that God's people cannot survive without the presence of God. And so according to verse 2, where we'll start tonight, after 20 long years, something changes. Something changes and we see that the people of Israel begin to lament after the Lord. So let's read, uh, let's read together and then we're going to consider the components or maybe even, if you will, the formula for revival. I'm going to start in chapter 7 verse 2 and I'll read through I think 11. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Verse 3, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the, and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. (laughs) But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day, and the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. As we have already heard tonight, it is precious and it lights our path. 
So, Father, would you shine more light into our path tonight? I pray that you would accomplish your purposes among us. I pray, Father, that your kingdom would take deeper root in our hearts. Father, I pray that tonight, let me hide behind you. And let my words fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. Because we don't need to hear from me or any other man. We need to hear from you. And I'm hoping for things that only you can do. So, Father, let your word bear fruit in our life, we pray. Amen. Though the circumstances vary, the revival of God's people will always begin with one thing. An awareness of personal sin. Revival begins with an awareness of personal sin. Now the text doesn't explicitly explain what caused it, but but the people of Israel suddenly somehow realized that God was distant, and it wasn't God's fault, it was it was their fault. Verse 3 makes it clear that the people had been engaging in idolatry, that they had preferred the comforts of idolatry. Maybe they didn't like a maybe they liked having a God that was small and that didn't kill them when he looked at them. But either way, they preferred their idols to the worship of Yahweh, the living God. But all of this began to change when the people began to lament over their sin. I think that what was happening here is that at the end of 20 years, they began to realize that something was wrong. They became what I would call acutely aware of the absence of God. They became aware of the absence of God. And already we can see that, friends, no one will ever turn to God. No one will ever move towards Him until they recognize their need for Him. The degree that you feel your need for God is the degree that you will seek Him. And Israel began to see that they needed Him. No one will ever, will ever turn to God until they sense a void in their life. The absence of God's presence and the absence of God's blessing. Now there's many different ways that this can start. Many different catalysts. But ultimately, I think what it boils down to is a time where we realize some degree of emptiness or barrenness in our spiritual lives. A degree of emptiness or barrenness in our spiritual lives. Who among us would say that we have as much of God as we want? None of us, right? We want more. Perhaps for Israel, after, <clears throat> after 20 years of living under the thumb of the Philistines, Israel came to their senses and remembered that they were not experiencing the blessing that God had promised them. They were not experiencing that. They, sure, they were in the promised land, but because of their sin, because of their unfaithfulness, they were surrounded by their, by their enemies, Because of their unfaithfulness, the tabernacle was empty. It stood barren. And they knew it was because of their sin. This reminds us of one of the reoccurring themes that we see over and over in the book of Samuel that is so important for us as we grow in our faith. That God pours out His blessing on His people as we obey. God pours out His blessing on us as we obey. So in obedience, we can expect His blessing. In disobedience, we cannot. Obedience leads to joy and to blessing and to peace. And disobedience leads to barrenness and even death. Friends, sin is always, always the cause for disrupted or broken fellowship with the Lord. It's always the cause. 
If we want to experience a renewed blessing of God's presence, we must begin by identifying and seeing our own personal sin. I say personal, not someone else's sin. That's not helpful, right? What matters is that we see and see our own sin and identify and then begin to see it as God sees it. So let me ask you a question I think that I asked last week. If you would just think, I mean, how would you describe the quality of your spiritual life right now? How, how, would, you, how would you rate it? And no matter where we are in our walk with the Lord, we all have remaining sin that disrupts our fellowship with Him in, in some way. And until we see it, until we see that sin, until we identify it, there will be no revival. There will be no revival. But you see, God in His marvelous mercy, He allowed for Israel to experience the sense of barrenness that was in their life because of their sin and because of the absence of God. And again, it's a reminder to us that sin is always, always, always accompanied by misery. And it's God's kindness to us when he opens our eyes and allows us to sense it, to see it. Sinners get used to sin. They get used to thinking that's all there is. And if you have walked with God, you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and sin is the the opposite of that. He opened their eyes to see their misery and he wants to do the same for us. Revival always begins with an awareness of our personal sin, which means an awareness of our need for a Savior. But that's not enough. Awareness of sin is not enough. It must be accompanied by the second thing we see in this text. Sorrow for sin. Sorrow for sin. The text says that the people lamented after the Lord. That's Bible talk for they felt sorrow for their sin. They were genuinely saddened by their spiritual condition. And I don't just mean Sunday school talk. I don't mean vague kind of you know, disappointment. Saddened enough to make a change. It was seen as the people fasted and prayed and made sacrifices to the Lord and called upon Samuel. And I think it should help us see that, you know, so often as believers, you and I, we, we may have a general awareness of sin in our life, like a vague kind of, we know there's some stuff there, but it doesn't bother us that much. It doesn't really bother us that much. We don't weep over it. We don't think about it carefully. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to sort through someone else's sin problems? Have you ever noticed that? Man, you can just sit down and talk for hours about someone else. But when someone asks you a hard question, um, right? We, we tend to be unaware. We tend not to look, to think it's not that big of a deal. We see, we sin because we think it makes us happy. That's the only reason we sin. So it's always God's mercy when he allows us to feel pain or to experience the consequences of our sin. Because until we see sin's sinfulness, we will not feel sin's sorrow. 
until we recognize that our sin weakens our soul, our inner man, and ruins our appetite for God, we will see no reason to expel it. This can be true for Christians especially because we like grace. But until we see the danger of sin, that it entangles the desires of our hearts, that it works to divert our attention away from God and to itself, until we see the insanity of this, Nothing will change. And sin has to work to convince us that the thing our lusts crave is better than God. And until we see this, until we see sin as the wrecking ball of our happiness, as the element that spoils our lives, until we see that sin can only be indulged in as we run from the presence of God, and until we see that God is the greatest, most satisfying treasure in the universe, we will have no sadness for our sin. We will just plug along, comfortable. We will not cry out, and there will be no revival. The people of God who do not grieve over their personal sin will not experience any new measure of revival. Think about that. Until we grieve over our sin, there will be no change in our walks with the Lord. Church, the formula is simple. No lamenting, no revival. It doesn't matter who comes here in November. No lamenting, no revival. It's not enough to mildly disapprove of the sin in our lives. We need more than regret. We need sorrow. For us to experience personal and then church-wide revival, we must not only see our sin, but we must have a genuine sorrow for it. But how do we know when we have sorrow over our sin? Well, that brings us to the third part of this equation. How do we know when we have genuine sorrow over sin? Well, there's only one way to tell. Repentance. Repentance. When the people lamented after the Lord, Samuel instructed them by saying, If, that is a conditional word, if you are returning to the Lord. Okay, so that means that they could be faking it. They could not be returning to the Lord. They could be going through some motions. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the astroths from among you. You see what Samuel's doing here? He's saying, okay, if you really mean this, if you are really sorrowful for your sin, then stop doing it. Then stop doing it. Turn away. This is consistent with the way John the Baptist talks about repentance in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, where he says, you know, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I love that phrase. It's so helpful for us. True repentance bears fruit. Do you, do you know what that fruit is? Do you, know what the, do you know what the fruit of repentance is? Do you want to know if you are actually repenting of sin in your life? You will be turning away from sin. You turn away from it. Now this can be tricky because it can be faked. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul talks about two different types of sorrow over sin. He calls it, in a sense, worldly sorrow and, we could say, godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is when someone feels temporary sadness or temporary discomfort over the consequences of their sin. 
right? You feel really guilty as the police officer is sitting there writing you the ticket, right? Do you care about speeding or do you care about the insurance change, right? There, that, that, that's the difference. It's, it's a temporary discomfort over the consequences of sin. Usually it's because they got caught and now they have to deal with some unpleasant circumstance, Worldly sorrow is a sorrow that only grieves the consequences of sin and isn't concerned about the fact that sin grieves God. That sin grieves God. It's a kind of sorrow that never leads to change. Paul says instead it leads to death. But godly sorrow is different. Godly sorrow leads us in the direction of repentance towards God. Godly sorrow leads us in the direction of repentance towards God. It's not just a bad feeling about sin, but it's a changing your mind about sin in a way that changes your actions towards sin. It's when you see sin from God's perspective, which will always result in a change of mind and pursuing a life away from that sin. It's godly sorrow. I'm reading the book, uh, The Martian, uh, written by Andy Ware, and it, it tells the story of an American astronaut by the, name, uh, by the name of Mark Watney, who is stranded on Mars and trying to survive. Okay? It's the story, you know, in this story, this stranded astronaut uses something that NASA made, everything that NASA made, and it was called an RTG. This is fun. A radioisotope thermoelectronic genera- generator. In other words, it was a very big box of radioactive plutonium that was in a fancy case designed by NASA to protect the person from radiation. All right? It's plutonium. Okay? Plutonium-238, supposedly, which is the most unstable type of plutonium in the world. I have no idea if this is true. It's just a book. But apparently, astronauts needed this RTG as a specific ongoing energy source. It, it just glowed red hot just all the time. It didn't dissipate. It, it was designed to be, since it was so dangerous, once it was used for whatever it's used for, it was designed to be disposed of as soon as they landed on Mars. So they had its specific instructions, march the thing four miles away from you know the space station, or it was called the HAV, and, and bury it there. And don't let let any living thing go near it. Well, one, that all, all that happened, and once this guy was stranded, Mark Watney, the, the protagonist, he, he decides he needs to go cross-country on a cross-country trip across, across Mars, and it's very cold there, and so he wanted to stay warm. So he risked his life by going to dig up this RTG and decides to keep the radioactive ball of plutonium in his lap to keep him warm. All right, that's what he did. He actually did this a couple times. And knowing that if, if he shook it too hard, the case could rupture and he's just dead. Dead, right? You see, a man with worldly sorrow may recognize that a ball of plutonium is deadly, but he may still want to keep it on his lap. He may put it away later, you know, after he's done with it, after he's had the heat. But godly sorrow sees the danger and goes and drives four miles away and buries it in a hole and vows never to return. So often, we treat our sin as dangerous or unpleasant, but we're not willing to part with it. 
But true repentance, repentance that leads to revival, involves us seeing our sin as deadly and then going to bury it in a hole four miles away to rot. You see, in this story, Samuel, he actually tests the intentions of the people. He basically says, okay, so you're sorry for your sin. You want to return to the Lord. You want to see revival? Prove it. Put away your sin. Put it away. Bury it. Bury it in the ground. Friends, what radioactive sin are you holding in your lap? What are the patterns in your life that are keeping you from really seeking God? I've prayed today that God would reveal that to us. The things that are keeping us from Him. Because whatever's keeping us from Him, it could be a good thing, but it has become a bad thing when it keeps us from God. What is more attractive to you than God? Bury it. Put it away. Let that be God's call for us as a church to put it away. So often I'm afraid that that as Christians, we're tempted to think of repentance as a novelty, right? Something that, you know, new Christians do and baby Christians do. And we might do it, you know, on special occasions and, and when, you know, what, big mess-ups or something. But, but the Bible describes the Christian life as a continual act, a continual walking of repentance. It's what we call sanctification. And it's not the strange part of the Christian life. It is the normal part of the Christian life. We are, in a sense, to be a people who are always weeping. It's the normal thing. Repentance is not something we do on special occasions or even just at the Lord's Supper. Repentance is the daily practice and activity of a growing Christian. You want to see a Christian who is growing, you will find daily and constant repentance. So maybe we could think about it like this. What is the last sin that you repented over? What is the last sin that you buried? I mean, that you fought. What's the last sin that you first became aware of and then you were grieved by it to the point that you buried it? Repentance is not just how you start the Christian life. Repentance is how you walk in the Christian life. It's how we grow in godliness by bearing fruit that is keeping with repentance. That as we hear God's word and as God's spirit reveals our sin to us, that if our hearts are tender, we will be saddened and lament over our sin, which means that we will put it away through the act of repentance. Now, we have many moments of weakness. We may return back to our sin. And, but what do we do? What does a Christian do? He starts all over. He goes and he buries it again. That's the call of the Christian. The Christian is not the guy who solves the sin problem. The Christian is the guy who knows how to solve the sin problem and repents day after day after day. Do you want more of God in your life? Christian, do you want more of God? Do you want to see renewal and repentance in your heart? I'm not talking about the nation. I'm not talking about the White House. I'm talking about in your heart then find out what sin is keeping you from God and bury it in a hole. Put it away. And that brings us to another really important point. You see, repentance itself is really not enough. It's not enough. 
Repentance itself is not enough to make us right with God. We need blood. We need a sacrifice. That brings us to the fourth component here. In verses 5-11, through we read about the sacrifice for sin. The people of Israel, the story, the way it's going is that they have gathered for public worship and the Philistines decide, hey, they're all together. This sounds like a good idea to attack again, right? But this time, instead of fighting on their own strength or seeking to take the ark of God out as a lucky rabbit's foot, they do something quite different. This time the people of Israel turn to Samuel and he does two things for them. He makes sacrifices for the people and he prays. He intercedes for them. Basically, we see Samuel here as both the high priest who's making sacrifice and the mediator who's interceding on behalf of the people to God. Now for us as New Testament Christians, we can't help but look ahead and see Samuel's lamb as a picture of Christ, our sacrifice. That was the point. It was looking ahead to Christ. It's a picture that reminds us that in the Old Testament, the only way that sinners could be forgiven by God and restored to his favor was through blood, through the sacrifice of a lamb. It was a vivid reminder of the danger of sin. It was a reminder of what God said in the garden. Don't eat of this fruit. If you do, you will surely die. A reminder of for the wages of sin is death. Yet when Christ came, the Bible says that he came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Church, Though sin is the only contribution that you and I make to our salvation, it's not the only part of our story. We speak also of the grace that has been made available to us through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. That's why we sing, this is my story. This is my song. This is the story of my life. And I'm going to praise Him for it. The only reason that we can have courage to look upon our sin day after day and to deal with it, to repent daily, is that we know that now, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a different story. It is a complete story for us who are in Christ. Yes, our sin grieves us. Don't move past that. Don't move past that. Yes, we lament over our remaining struggle with sin, but friends, hear this too. Our struggle with sin does not define us. It does not define us. Because not only do we see Samuel's lamb as a picture of Christ our sacrifice, but we also see in this text Samuel the intercessor as a picture of Christ our great high priest. Samuel is representative of the lamb or the the priest making the sacrifice as well as the one making mediation. We see him as the intercessor, as the picture of Christ our high priest. Just as Samuel mediated and prayed on behalf of the people as they gathered there at Mizpah, so now is Christ our great high priest who is able and at this very moment sitting at God's right hand mediating for our sin daily. Christ is better than Hophni and Phinehas. Christ is better than Eli. And Christ is better than Samuel. 
Hophni and Phinehas sinned. Christ never sinned. Eli sinned and died. Christ never sinned. Samuel died. Christ never dies. And his ministry for us continues to this day. You see, through all of the Christian life, all the Christian life is repentance, but it's not only repentance. It's also remembrance. It's also remembrance. In chapter 7, we, the rest of this, we're not going to read the rest of 12 through 17. This, I can summarize it for But what we see is that in response to the repentance of his people, we see God defeating the Philistines. It says, God thundered and they were defeated. <laughs> Isn't that great? All throughout the book of Samuel, we see God defeating his enemies with like nothing. Right? He marches places with a piece of furniture and they get destroyed, right? People, uh, yeah, I mean, he, who is this God? Who is like him? Anyway, we, so we see God defeating the Philistines and restoring Israel to a time of peace and blessing. That's what the rest of the chapter talks about. And in response to this, Samuel sets up a stone that he calls the Ebenezer Stone, right? We're not talking about uh, Scrooge, right? Ebenezer Scrooge, not that. Okay, this is Ebenezer Stone. We sang about it. It's it, it's a word that means till now the Lord has helped us, or thus far the Lord has helped us. It was intended to be a reminder to the people of God of what God has accomplished on their behalf. There are times in our lives, there are times in the life of Israel where things were hard, and it was hard to remember. It was hard to have faith and confidence that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. Years of silence, decades of silence, times that it was hard to trust in God. And so Samuel helped them, and we have seen this before in the Old Testament, by planting a stone, reminding them of what God has done. Not just his military assistance, which is fascinating and terrifying, but a stone reminding us of his grace. It's a reminder of His grace. It was a reminder of the time when Israel returned to the Lord and accepted them. And He accepted them. And it's a reminder to us, the church, as well. I've learned that so much of the Christian life, so much of progressing in the Christian life, involves looking back and remembering I think we could even say that in the Christian life, that's really how we make progress. We go forward by remembering. We remember the danger of sin. And we repent by burying our sin in a hole in the ground. But also by remembering the grace that is available for sin. And we run to Jesus day after day. We remember that because of Christ, sin does not have the last word over our lives. And so we remember the sacrifice He made for sin. Friends, we should be a people who make it our daily business to remember the cross of Christ. This is not just for the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper we remember with physical elements. We look back and we remember. But we should be a people daily who are remembering and telling of the mighty deeds of the Lord. And no matter how near or how far you are from the Lord, let me invite you also to remember the words of Zechariah in chapter 1 verse 3. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, 
and I will return to you. I'd like to invite you to bow your heads and let's enter into a time of, of response and of reflection. And just take a few moments to consider what do you need to remember the most tonight? What do you need to remember the most? Do you need to be reminded of the danger of sin? Perhaps you need to be reminded of the renewal that awaits repentance. Do you need to be reminded of the free offer of grace? That there's grace for your sin, no matter how dark or how big. It seems to me that perhaps there are two extremes, so let me encourage you. Don't remember sin and forget grace. And don't remember grace and forget sin. Father, I pray that your Spirit would activate your Word in our hearts, not just now in this place, but as we go. I pray, Father, that for each of us, that whatever sins we have remaining in our life, I pray that you would open our eyes, give us a new sense of our sin, not that we would despair. We know that there is grace, but give us a sense of our sin that we would see its danger. And Father, I pray that as we see our sin, would you, by your Spirit and by your kindness, lead us to repentance. Father, there may be some among us who have to do some hard things to repent, who have to give up some treasured pleasure, who have to break off some relationship or fight through changing some habit. Give us grace. Father, I pray that renewal and revival would begin in our heart tonight and that it would spread. But Father, no matter what takes place tonight or tomorrow, we thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus. And no matter how we respond, Father, we thank you for safety in Christ. Encourage us, humble us, sober us as we go. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. You may stand and go in peace, church.